Hi, and welcome again to another episode of Creation and Conflict Podcast, where our goal is to turn confrontation into conversation. This is your host, Daniel Eaton. Today's topic is one that I'm really excited to be getting into. This kind of gets into a lot of the meat of Genesis 1 and how to understand Genesis 1, but it is going to be a lengthy topic, so it is going to be split into probably three different episodes. The first episode that we'll be getting into today will be a little bit more general. The next episode that I am going to be recording next week is actually going to be with a special guest. We are going to be having an interview with screenwriter and author Brian Gadawa, who has written, I think, three or four different Christian fiction series as well as some nonfiction books. He's a best-selling Christian author on Amazon and is, in my mind, right up there with authors like Louis L'Amour or James Michener when it comes to the amount of the level of detail and study that he does in the historical context that he's writing in. And so he knows a lot about ancient Near East cultures and Hebrews in particular and what they believed and how they thought. And it's going to be a fascinating interview. So I'm uh, really looking forward to that. And I hope you are too. But the interview with him will be getting into the ancient cosmology and cosmic geography of the culture in which Genesis was written. After that, we'll come back for a third episode where we will be getting into the functional ontology of the Hebrews as well as a little bit into the cosmic temple context as it relates to the context in which Moses was addressing the Hebrews. Before we get into today's topic, though, I wanted to start out with our traditional quote. This comes from St. Augustine, in his commentary on Genesis, he says, In matters that are obscure and far beyond our vision, even in such as we may find treated in Holy Scripture, different interpretations are sometimes possible without prejudice to the faith that we have received. In such a case, we should not rush in headlong and so firmly take our stand on one side that if further progress in the search of truth justify justly undermines this position, we too fall with it. That would be to battle not for the teaching of the Holy Scripture, but for our own, wishing its teaching to conform to ours, whereas we ought to wish ours to conform to that of sacred Scripture. It's one of my favorite quotes from him, and it addresses the purpose of this podcast perfectly. The reason why I teased this episode on accommodation and context as being kind of a messy topic when I discussed it in prior episodes is because this has the possibility of shaking your view of scripture. And I hope it does in a good way. Michael Patton, one of my favorite theology experts, authors, bloggers, podcasters, has a excellent series called Introduction to Theology. 
that's available on his website, credohouse.org. And I'll put a link to that in all the usual places. But in that video series and audio series, he lays out different levels of theology. And these levels start from the most inaccurate to the most accurate. And these levels would be tabloid theology, folk theology, lay theology, ministerial theology, professional theology, and academic theology. And basically, the further down that list you go, the more knowledgeable you are on the topic and the more time you've actually spent becoming an expert in a particular topic. Now, to give you an example of these uh, first couple, so you'll understand what he's talking about, tabloid theology are basically the kind of stories like you would see in the tabloids or that you would hear that are things like the person who picked up the hitchhiker that turned out to be an angel and disappeared in their backseat, or seeing the face of Jesus on a soda cracker or a pancake or whatever, and this proving that Jesus is real, or statues that apparently cry, or that kind of stuff. Think National Enquirer and anything it might say about theology. That would be tabloid theology. A level up from that is people who have sincere beliefs about theological topics, but these things are not really found in the Bible. This would include things like angels having wings or people becoming angels or the devil having a pitchfork and red horns, different things that are cultural in a theological sense as opposed to just trashy tabloid. But it's things that that we have grown up with because of images that we have seen or songs that we have heard that impact our theology. I would include in that things like claims that there was no rain before the flood or things like that. The next step up is where I find myself interacting a lot. And this is typically what you see a lot of in groups that discuss uh, young earth versus old earth or creation versus evolution. And that is the category of lay theology. Lay theology is one step up above the categories of urban legend and folktales. And... I have kind of my own nickname for this category called caveman theology. If you're familiar with the uh, Geico commercials, so easy a caveman could do it. That is kind of the approach that many lay people take to theology. They will claim that they don't need to understand what the Hebrew words mean or the Greek words mean, or they may even claim that they don't even interpret scripture at all, that they just read it. And you will see arguments, uh, for example, that Genesis 1 is so simple that a second grader could understand it. That's kind of where I get my analogy of caveman theology. Well, there are a lot of passages in the Bible that are not so simple that a second grader could understand it. And when we take that approach that the simplest possible view of a passage of scripture is therefore the right one. It's kind of a lazy 
approach, and it's kind of an excuse for us to not delve deeper and learn more. And as I mentioned in prior episodes, scratch the surface to see what else may be here. And so it's that kind of lazy caveman theology that the following topics are really going to shatter. And I'm hoping to show that if we're going to come to a proper understanding of what Moses was teaching, that we need to come to a proper understanding of what Moses was thinking and what his audience was thinking. Part of that is going to require us to stop looking at the text in a Western mindset that is very logical and very outline-driven. The Bible was not written in the context of a list of bumper sticker quotes and proof texts to back up whatever our interpretation is. The Bible is literature that is across multiple genres, and if we don't take it and study it like you would a passage in literature class in college where you examine all the nuances and all the different things that might be going on in it to pull the truth that is trying to be conveyed in the passage, as opposed to just reading it like you would the back of a sports card, a baseball card that has all the stats and numbers. We need to approach scripture as ancient literature because that's what it is. And we need to approach it in their context and not in ours. And that includes realizing that in the Eastern mindset, Truth was delivered not as a headline and a bunch of bullet points, but it was believed that truth was best learned when it was discovered. And so they would lay their passages out in such a way that something maybe didn't quite sit right and you'd have to noodle on it for a minute and then you'd have the light bulb moment the lights would come on and it's like, oh, okay, now I understand. This is what this is talking about or this is what it's trying to get me to think about. And that was kind of the mindset in which a lot of this was written. And within that particular context, you see things like chiasms all through the Old Testament. Now, a chiasm is a poetic structure kind of like we would do with rhymes with roses are red, violets are blue, you know, where we would alternate back and forth with rhyming words. Uh, chiasms can have a nested structure where instead of alternating back and forth, and they do that some as well, but they would alter, they would nest an idea where it would go like A, B, C, back to B, back to A with C being the central point, what it's trying to get you to focus on. And you kind of see that in the Pentateuch as well, where you have Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus being the central point, back to Numbers, back to Deuteronomy. And the central point in the Pentateuch being Leviticus and the meeting on Mount Sinai and how that re-establishment of direct proximity and relationship with God 
and the covenant with the Hebrews is central to the Pentateuch. In that context, Genesis is actually an introduction to the Pentateuch. Genesis 1 is basically an introduction to the rest of Genesis. And when you get into the first couple of verses prior to let there be light, that was an introduction to what things were like prior to the creation week. And yet we take an introduction to an introduction and spend so much time focused on the nuances of the introduction and trying to turn that into some kind of proof text that we miss this overall context of what they what Moses was trying to get people to focus on. Even when you get into Leviticus being the central point of the Pentateuch as a whole, Leviticus itself is a chiasm. It is in kind of a, an overall broad or general format of A, B, C, D, C, B, A, in which you start and end with rituals. Nested inside of that, you have chapters of the priesthood going from chapters 8 through 10. And then as you come out of it, generic stuff about general stuff about the priesthood is mentioned in chapters 21 through 22. Nested within those chapters of the priesthood, you have chapters about purity in chapters 11 through 15, and then coming back out of it in chapters 17 through 20, with the central part of Leviticus being chapter 16, all about the Day of Atonement. And that is where people are atoning for their sins and getting in a right relationship with God. If you want to drop down into even more detail, there is a really cool article that I will link to in the show notes and on the website that breaks the book of Leviticus down into 13 levels of chiastic structure. And the article is called Chiasmus and Concentric Structure of the Book of Leviticus. But even so, when you look at Genesis in the context that they would and read the Pentateuch in the context of the ancient Hebrews, you would see pointers in the structure that point to what is central in the passage. We miss that and we take the bits that are proof texts for the discussions we're having today as being some central core part of it. And that's not how they would have read it at all. Even within Genesis 1 through 3, there are chiasms and a chiastic structure that we'll get into in later episodes when we get into those chapters in detail. But just keep in mind that when we're reading the text, and often we're reading a translation of the text, we're not thinking about text the way they did. Another of the things that we need to keep in context, in focus, is the fact that their context is different than ours. When you think about all of the writings of Moses and how much of the Pentateuch is focused on the Mount Sinai experience and all the instructions that God gave to Moses that he brought down and imparted to the people, that context 
is important in understanding how they would have accepted what they heard. And part of that context is covenants. We have some major covenants going on in the Pentateuch. First, we have the covenant with Adam, where God came, established fellowship and relationship with man, in this case, a chosen man, Adam, and he was in close proximity with Adam, and man was basically told to fill the earth and subdue it. You have the covenant with Noah, where, again, after the flood, Noah was called to fill the earth and subdue it. You have a covenant with Abraham. The covenant with Abraham included future generations, and we also we often apply the fact that through Abraham all nations would be blessed as something that was referring to Christ. But it also referred to Moses. And in the covenant with Abraham, Abraham was promised that his offspring would be comprised of many nations, that he would be the father of many nations. Again, going back to this concept of filling the earth. When we get to Moses, we find at Mount Sinai, God returning to his chosen people through a chosen man. And the people under Moses and Joshua were again called to subdue the earth or the land or the promised land and to basically fill it. This point in time when Moses is delivering all of the things that he heard on Mount Sinai and delivering the book of Genesis and the rest of the Pentateuch that he was responsible for writing or editing, depending on your take on that. This was basically all that the original audience had in mind. They didn't know about how Christ was going to come later and going to fulfill everything. But even when Christ came later to reestablish a proximity with man in a whole new way, and to permanently reestablish fellowship with man, he was commanding us to go to all the world and create disciples, in a sense, subduing it for him, in a sense, creating a worldwide impact for what all he had to say, so that all men everywhere would have this new relationship with Christ. And when you think about it, when he comes back in the second coming and when the eternal covenant is established with God, that again is about proximity with God and it's about relationship with God. And it is about a global nature of that in the new heavens and the new earth. So all of this this context of covenants was kind of central to what was going on in their mind and in their worldview at the time that all of this was delivered. So we kind of need to put ourselves in their shoes in this and understand that their worldview at the time was very centralized around this idea of covenants and establishing a relationship with God, establishing proximity with God, And that when this information was then revealed to them, that they would read it the way an Eastern mindset or Eastern worldview would read it to discover these kinds of things in the text, even though they are not explicitly stated in the text. 
This is the kind of things that they would have looked for, and this is how they would have understood it. So we have multiple things going on here that remove our context and our point of view from that of the ancient Hebrews. Not only was it written in a different language that we often have to have translated, and those translations have editorial spin to them, the translations often are agenda-driven in the sense that they will choose words for the translation that are based on a particular theological slant or a particular theological position that they want to protect uh, because they don't want their market to reject this new translation because it does not treat a particular topic the way that is popular in a particular market. You also have this historical context going on of where this was in time and what was going on as far as building the tabernacle and getting in uh, this new proximity with God, this new relationship with God, and how that is echoed in the chiastic structure of the Hebrew text and the central focus of the Pentateuch, and that being a focus that is different than what we tend to focus on. But there's also an entire cultural worldview of other beliefs that they had that we don't share. And we need to understand that worldview because it is in that culture that that message is being delivered. And it is within that worldview that that message is being interpreted. And so that gets us into this really messy topic of accommodation. And I say that it is a messy topic because once you recognize the cultural worldview in which something was written and delivered and recognize that some of those things in that culture that were believed are not accurate, you can no longer practice what I call caveman theology where the simplest, most literal reading of the text is allegedly the intended message. Because if we do that, then we end up with a Bible that teaches error. And we've basically sacrificed infallibility and pretty much all of inerrancy by not recognizing the cultural context of the passage. And I'll give you a little bit of an example. I've been to Africa twice on mission trips. And on both occasions, whenever I was speaking or preaching, the translators would often take a phrase that I had used and actually have to explain it to that culture. I may have referenced something inadvertently that was a concept in our culture here in the United States, that they would not have fully grasped because they didn't really understand that. And so even though we had been in instructed before we went over and had actually practiced saying things without using figures of speech, I would say something sometimes and then the translator would have to go into an entire paragraph of explanation explaining that idea to that foreign audience. And it's because that foreign audience did not share my worldview. And so they, they did not understand some of the references that I may have made. But the authors of the Bible 
the earthly authors of the Bible writing to their audience at the time were not really focused on how could this possibly be understood 3,000, 4,000 years from now. They were focused on delivering a revelation that they had received to the audience in which they were speaking. You see this example in Paul's letters that he wrote to the different churches. And you see it in the beginning of Revelation where you have messages to specific churches. That sets the context in which the message is being explained. So in order for us to understand these letters and these books that are written, we need to understand that original context. Now, there's a really good detailed page on the topic of accommodation at the BibleStudyTools.com website. And I'll put a link to this in all the usual places. But I highly recommend that you go and read that. It's a little bit more academic, but there is an entire section, section four, that talks about accommodation in Revelation. And that is basically the type of accommodation that I'm addressing here. There's also a good definition that I've borrowed from Theopedia.com, and I'll put the link to that in the show notes and on the website as well. But it defines accommodation as divine accommodation means that God has accommodated various truths about himself and the world in such a way that they can be comprehended by the human mind. If you want to see the flip side of this argument that there is accommodation in the Bible. I'm going to uh, link to this as a reference as well, but the Blue Letter Bible website has an article from Don Stewart in opposition to the idea of accommodation in the Bible. In that particular article, he states, The accommodation theory says that God did not attempt to correct the faulty scientific beliefs that were held in biblical times. Rather, he accommodated himself to these incorrect historical, spiritual, and unscientific beliefs of the people. It was not his purpose to teach people about the functioning of the universe. It was to teach them spiritual truth. Therefore, we should expect to find historical and scientific errors in Scripture. Now, that's a a little bit of a slanted view, I think, of accommodation in that he goes on and says that if he, God, accommodated his words, then he is no longer the God of truth. That's the kind of attitude and the kind of response that you get from people who hold to an extreme view of inspiration and inerrancy. But this assumes that the way that truth is being explained is part of the revelation that was given to the earthly authors. It basically tries to support inerrancy by by denying that, as in my example, a translator might actually be elaborating on something or having to explain something to an audience. It, as we talked about in our, in our topic of inspiration and infallibility and inerrancy, it takes the 
idea of inspiration to ver- to the very word choices used in the Bible. It's this particular definition or characterization of accommodation is also pretty slanted in the way that it says that if you believe in accommodation, you are expecting errors in Scripture. Well, something is only in error if it is being taught in Scripture. And as I've said before, there are things that the Bible contains versus things that it is teaching. For example, the Bible contains examples of a lot of really, really bad behavior. But we don't take those episodes of bad behavior as something the Bible is teaching us to do. We take it within the context of we can learn from that. We can learn from the results of that bad behavior, and we cannot follow that particular example. It seems kind of odd to me that people who can take that approach when it comes to things that Moses may have done, like killing the Egyptian before he fleed into the wilderness, as, oh, that's something that he did. That was a belief that he had that he should do that, but that doesn't mean that we should believe the same way and do the same thing. Yet, then when it comes to descriptions of cosmology, for example, that are things that Moses also believed, that we should somehow also believe those things, or deny that he believed those things. It's a little bit of a double standard there in the way that literalists will pick and choose what we're supposed to believe and what is and isn't supposed to be literal based on how they read the Bible. I think a good example of accommodation one of the one of my favorite examples and an example that I used in my Kindle book was the example from Veggie Tales and the silly songs with Larry and there is a Veggie Tales song about a little I think asparagus it's afraid of the dark and the Veggie Tales characters come in and sing that God is bigger than the boogeyman he's bigger than Godzilla and the monsters on TV And I think that's a good explanation or a good example because when you think about a child that's afraid of the dark, trying to carry on a rational, logical discussion with them about, you know, there are no, you know, there's no such thing as monsters under your bed. Well, that's just going to exacerbate the problem and have the child thinking about scary things under his bed. What we need to do is calm the child in the child's worldview that they have at the time that scary things exist and let them know that God is bigger than all of that and that God will take care of you. Now, it's not teaching that Godzilla is real and the monsters on TV are real and that there are boogeymans in the closet. The truth that's being communicated is that God is sovereign over everything and that God loves you and God will take care of you. I think you see that kind of stuff in the Bible. But that's not a lie to to teach your child that within the context of the child's understanding. I think that is what we need to grasp. To use another example, if I were to say that God made me, that's not a scientific statement. That's not a biological statement. It's a true statement 
in the sense that God is responsible for me being here. It's a purpose statement that I'm here because of God, but it's not a scientific statement. And lots of times when we go to scripture with a literalist, scientific, Western mindset and approach scripture that way, we end up with seeing things that aren't scientifically accurate. But that doesn't mean that the point that's being made is not true. When it comes to the creation itself, how can we tell when something is literal or not literal? How can we tell when it's figurative, for example? We can tell by examining the item that's being talked about. We can examine the creation itself. And by examining the creation itself, we can tell what things said about that are literal and are intended to be taken in a scientific proof text kind of way, and whether it's teaching something else entirely. But some see accommodation as an attack on infallibility. I don't see it that way at all. I see it as the exact opposite. If I am going to hold to the fact that the Bible does not teach error, then I have to recognize that some of the things that are in the Bible are not being taught, but are examples or explanation or the context in which something else is being explained. The idea that ancient authors and their audiences had some kind of perfect understanding of things and that they would not have been in error in anything that they said or anything that they believed kind of comes from a modern hubris where we think that we have a perfect understanding of everything and we project that back onto them because we believe what we think they believe. Therefore, they must believe and must know everything that we know. But that is reading way too much into the text. And if we're going to take that approach, then we need to show that the things that we take as literal, they were taking as literal. The things that we take as figures of speech, they were taking as figures of speech. And that's just not historically possible. So we have to recognize that there is a this cultural difference between what we know and what we now understand and what they understood at the time and recognize that they could actually be wrong about some of the things that they thought about the universe and cosmology and how it all worked and how it was set up. I led the podcast off with a, one of my favorite quotes from St. Augustine, but there's another one, another quote of his that is in his book, The Literal Meaning of Genesis, which was written around 415 AD. And I'm sure that if you've been in the creation debate for a very long period of time that you're familiar with this. But he says, now it's disgraceful and a dangerous thing for an infidel to hear a Christian, presumably giving the meaning of Holy Scripture, talking nonsense on these topics. And we should take all means to prevent such an embarrassing situation in which people show up fast ignorance in a Christian and laugh at the scorn. And here's the part that I really like. The shame is not so much that an 
ignorant individual is derided, but that people outside of the household of faith think that our sacred writers held such opinions. He goes on to say, And to the great loss of those for whose salvation we toil, the writers of our scripture are criticized and rejected as unlearned men. Now, I like this quote not because I agree with Augustine on this, but because it is a good example of this idea that the ancient authors, human authors of scripture, were somehow not wrong about things. They were somehow not unlearned men. Unlearned compared to us, of course they were. They didn't understand science. They didn't understand the creation like we do. They didn't understand a lot of the theology that we understand today. And I'm specifically speaking of Moses and the Pentateuch at this point, not necessarily Paul's writings, but there is a lot that we have learned that we incorporate into our worldview that Moses did not have. And because of that, we need to recognize that compared to us, they are unlearned, much in the way that a child that is still learning is unlearned. And the way that things were explained to them and the way that they in turn explain things to others may not have the same scientific precision and accuracy that we as adults in the Western world may approach things. So it's important for us to understand that there's a difference between what the text contains and the intended message in that text. There's a difference between what it says and how I interpret it. There can even be differences, and probably are, between how I interpret it and how you interpret it. But we can all agree that there is an intended message in the text that is true, and we can use things like accommodation and use things like extra-biblical writings and the beliefs of cultures around them at that time to see what the intended message is in a particular passage. Now, one of the things that I have proposed that I have received a lot of blowback on is the idea that God did not need to reveal to man things that everybody knows, things that were the common belief at the time. For example, God did not need to reveal to man that there were stars in the sky. Everybody knew there were stars in the sky. So when God starts talking about stars in the sky, we need to look at what he is saying about stars in the sky that is different from the common knowledge of the time. By doing that, we can see what is this new truth that's being revealed in this particular passage. By comparing and contrasting the Hebrew worldview and what is in Genesis with the common knowledge of the time in those particular cultures, we can separate what I often refer to as the foreground from the background. Let me explain what I mean by that. In a painting, often you have a background that is a little bit distant, maybe a little bit fuzzy, out of focus a little bit, and then you have a foreground image. And I think of Bob Ross and his happy little paintings every time I think about this. 
But there is a difference between the focus of the picture and the things that are the backdrop for the picture or painting. In this particular case, in the Pentateuch and in other writings that discuss the creation and other things, we can look at what the common knowledge was, the common features of creation myths and flood myths, for example, in a particular area and see the cultural general knowledge of the time and use that as a background in which the revelation of Scripture is given. And by looking at the differences in Scripture compared to the general knowledge at the time, we can see the message that is being delivered, the new things that are being presented to a particular audience in order to get them to change their minds and change their thinking about a particular thing. And what we find is that in these particular cases, Scripture is generally a polemic against their surrounding culture and the issues of their day. It's not given to the, into the context of our day to address the particular debates that we have going on today. Debates against an old earth or debates against evolution or our political discourse and that kind of stuff. We cherry pick verses from scripture to support our particular position, but that's really to take it out of their context and put it into ours. And by doing so, we not only distort scripture, but we miss what it's truly saying. In effect, we are adding to scripture by taking it out of their context and making it say something that addresses our context. And that goes all the way back to the Ten Commandments and the commandment against using the Lord's name in vain which is not talking about what you might say if you accidentally slam your thumb in the car door. It's talking about using God as an appeal to authority and saying that, well, God says such and such. And doing that in a proof text kind of way that takes a passage out of its original context and places it in ours when that's not what he was talking about at all. Now, I can't close the section on accommodation without getting into some examples in scripture of how it uses what we would call bad science, but uses the common knowledge of the day to talk about particular things. One of my favorite examples of this is the one seed theory. It's called preformationism. And that's a big word. And I'll link to a Wikipedia article on that. But preformationism is the idea that we existed in our parents' seed, in our dad's seed, and he existed in his ancestors' seed, and that basically seed is planted on fertile soil or unfertile soil, in this case planted in a fertile or unfertile womb. But you see this idea presented in scripture that I did not come about by a combination of DNA from both of my parents, but I existed within my father. 
You see this in Hebrews 7.10, where it talks about when Abraham met Melchizedek, that Levi was still in the loins of his ancestor. It was talking about Levi existing in a preborn state in Abraham's loins. That reflects the biological idea of reproduction that they had at the time. Now, the Bible is not teaching biology when it makes a statement like that. Hebrews 7 is about something else entirely. So we can't pull that out and place it in our scientific context without recognizing that that's incorrect. Later, you see debates between the Greeks and the Romans over whether or not man was planting seed or whether or not the genetic material, for lack of a better word, existed within the woman and man was basically just fertilizing the seed. But again, it's, it's all in this kind of context of farming and the way that they thought of how plants came to be. Therefore, we must come to be about the same way. You plant it, you fertilize it, you water it, and it grows. Another example is the idea of bad medicine. You see that where it often correlates illness or disease with some kind of curse or the result of a sin. You see this in in John 9 where Christ was asked about the blind man and asked which one of his parents had sinned, as if blindness was a result of one of the parents sinning, maybe while they were pregnant or something. You also see that kind of contrast in Exodus 15, 26, where it contrasts obeying God with the curses of Egypt. And it's taken a little bit more than just the fact that God can curse and that God can cause illness or disease or boils or, you know, whatever, like he did in the plagues of Egypt. But it's this idea that there's this direct correlation between your spiritual health and your physical health. And that if you get right with God, you're going to be healed because your problem is caused by sin. You also see this in the Old Testament particularly, and also during the in the Gospels during the time of Christ, where you see things like leprosy being correlated with this idea of being unclean. The temple was for spiritual purity. It was for maintaining a spiritual relationship with God. Yet certain physical conditions like leprosy were considered unclean, just as if you had sinned and were unrepentant. And therefore, you couldn't go into the temple. You couldn't have a relationship with God in the temple if you had leprosy or one of these other conditions. In 1 Corinthians 11, you also see illness and death being associated with not being pure when you take communion. It's the same kind of idea that if you're unpure spiritually, it's going to result in manifestations of bad health. There's also examples of bad anatomy in the Bible really all through the Bible. They did not understand anatomy the way we do. And there's a really good 
three-part article on this on a website called Torah Apologetics, and I will put a link to it because it's a rather long URL. I'll put a link to it in the show notes and on the website. But in Torah Apologetics, this three-part article goes into how the ancient Hebrews viewed the brain or didn't view the brain, and basically how they saw the heart as the seat of our mind and thoughts. Kidneys were seen as a vessel for our emotions, and your liver was the seat of glory and honor. Basically, all of our entrails, all of our organs, were seen as the seat of our mental and emotional and spiritual core. And you kind of see this in the way Egyptian pharaohs were entombed. They basically just sucked the brain out and threw it away because they didn't know what it was for. But they stored all of these intestines and kidneys and liver and and heart and everything in jars to be buried with you because those were the important things. And you'll see these references to the heart all through the Bible. And it's not just metaphor. It's what they actually believed. It's one of those cases where if you're going to claim that they were using figures of speech about these things, you need to show that they believed otherwise, that they had learned otherwise. And that knowledge did not come about until much later. They firmly believed that if you were stressed over something and, you know, were in angst over something, that the feelings that you had in your quote unquote gut or the heartburn that you might get or the chest pains that you might get or whatever, that that was because those were the locations where those things were occurring and they didn't know any better. But that kind of stuff is all through the Bible. There's another occasion of bad botany in the Bible. And that's where Christ in Mark 4, 31 through 32, talks about the mustard seed. He says, it's like a grain of mustard seed, which when it's sown in the ground is the smallest of all of the seeds on earth. Yet when it is sown, it grows and becomes larger than all of the garden plants and puts out large branches so that the birds of the air can make nests in its shade. Now, a mustard tree can get in ideal conditions about 30 feet tall. So it's a good-sized tree. It's a good-sized plant. But the mustard seed is not the smallest seed on earth, particularly not if you're going to imply a 21st century understanding of the word earth. There are other seeds that are smaller. So it's not teaching botany here. We can't take what it says here as a scientific statement. It's teaching something else. And we need to read the full context of Mark 4 to discover what that is. There are other passages as well. A lot of atheist sites actually have lists of all of these different things that the Bible is wrong about. For example, Proverbs 6 says that ants have no leaders, but they do. There are There's a queen ant, and there are supervisor ants, and there are different roles, and we now know that that is not a scientifically accurate statement. There are references that talk about the stars falling down to earth. 
as if there's something tiny that can float down like like bright grains of sand. When we know that that's not the case, these stars are considerably larger than the Earth. And so the idea that they can all come fall down to Earth is not teaching us something about astronomy and cosmology. In Leviticus 11, it talks about bats being birds. Well, we know that bats are not birds. They're not fowl. They're mammals. But because they were winged and because the ancient world didn't understand the classifications that we have, they are considered birds in the Bible. Another example, it's really kind of odd when you dig into the math of this, but uh, there are references in Second Chronicles 4 about the circumference of a basin in the temple. And we'll get into this basin a little bit more later when we start talking about the cosmic temple interpretation of Genesis. But this basin is said to have a particular diameter and a particular circumference. And the circumference that get, that is given does not match up with what we now know as pi. It's a rough approximation. But even given that, it's given a volume of water that is in this particular basin. And this volume of water that is in this particular basin is off by as much as 100%. Um, according to the scripture, the volume of this basin is 1,700 baths, and it's actually off by about 1,300 baths. So the math is really, really bad. And if we're going to take a hyper view of inspiration and a hyper view of inerrancy and apply it at that kind of level in scripture, there we're going to end up with scripture containing errors and basically throw infallibility and inerrancy out the window unless we can explain these particular things. And we can easily explain these particular things within the context in which the ancient world was thinking, the common knowledge at the time, and how the common knowledge at the time, just like the common language at the time, was being used to explain some other truth. We have to allow for this common knowledge and for things like hyperbole and rhetoric and even sarcasm and poetic license in the scripture if we're going to hold to infallibility without looking like a nutcase for all of the tortured hoops that we have to jump through to try to maintain some hyper view of inerrancy and inspiration in order to back up some other statements in the Bible that are made that support a particular view of creation. I hope you've enjoyed today's episode of Creation and Conflict, where our goal is to turn confrontation into conversation. I hope this hasn't run too long. I hope you're as excited as I am about next week's episode where we get into cosmic geography and cosmology with author Brian Godawa. I'll leave links in the show notes to all of the links that we've referenced today. I'll also add them to the website. If you haven't already, go to the website and check out the different resources that we have listed there. Check out all the different sources for the podcast. 
And join us next week as we talk about the conflict in creation as it relates to cosmology. Thanks for listening.